we just looked at Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, to his disciples and even to a larger crowd. But in doing so, he also revealed to them what it meant to follow such a Deliverer. And it did mean that we are to deny ourselves completely, take up our cross daily, and if we're ashamed of him and his words, he'll be ashamed of us when he comes in the glory with his heavenly angels. However, that's not his hope for any one of us, but rather that we can be bolstered by faith to truly follow him and be delivered into the ultimate promised land that he wants for every single one of us. And to ensure that his core of disciples, Peter, James, and John, can really get this and have it cemented as they lead others and be able to spread this word, he gives them a little bit of a sneak peek. And we look at this sneak peek of his glory in Luke chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 28. So turn over there and we begin to read. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. This is a purposefulness about his prayer life here. To climb a mountain in order to pray means that you're pretty serious about your prayer life. When Jesus chose the 12, including these guys, what did he do? He climbed a mountain and spent all night in prayer to be discerning, to be able to choose those that would be able to carry on the great message of his sacrifice uh, for, for others that would be able to come to know God. I have background music. <laughs> As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. In Matthew and Mark, the word that they use for change is transfigured. That's why this passage is often called the transfiguration of Christ. And this transfiguration is the Greek word metamorphosis, where we, we understand that word rather well. It comes to us right away into English. So as they're praying, this must have been quite a prayer, quite a, quite a quiet time, all of a sudden before their very eyes is the metamorphosis of Jesus himself on this glorious mountain. Peter later will describe this as a special sacred mountain. What mountain this is, no one actually knows. Deb and I have been able to visit in Israel and looked at a couple different sites that are speculated to be this mountain where such a glorious event occurred before the very eyes of, of fallen man, the, the change of Jesus. And one uh, possible solution to this mountain is a place called Mount Hermon, which is not too far from the previous scene where Jesus allows the disciples to know that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Mount Hermon is not too far from Caesarea Philippi, so many speculate that this could, could be the place. It was interesting, when we went to go visit Caesarea Philippi, on the way we stopped near Mount Hermon, and while we were there, we took some photographs, and while we were there, it was a really cool day. It's, it's the highest mountain. It's, it's the uh, headwaters of the Jordan River flow from this mountain, but it, it is the highest mountain in the area. And as we were there, a cloud, I don't know if it descended upon or just came across, but a cloud settled on the top of Mount Hermon, and it was the only cloud in the sky at the moment. And because it was such a clear day and the sun was shining, the sun seemed to just grab this cloud and brought it into grand illumination. Wow. 
right on the top of this mountain. And, and just looking at it from our vantage point of many miles away, we all got goosebumps. And, you know, everybody's going for the photo op, of course, at that very time. If you want to see that, you can look up my Facebook from November of a year ago, and you'll see plenty of pictures of Deb in the foreground with this mountain of glory behind her. And it's really like glory on top of glory, really, in that picture. It's beautiful. It's amazing. I don't know, I don't know how I'll make that my, my Facebook canvas every day of my life, really. So... But the other, the other possible site for this mountain may have been Mount Tabor, which is right in the middle of, of Israel. It's, it's actually right in the Jezreel Valley where every major battle occurs, including the great battle of Armageddon. Uh, all will occur. And Mount Tabor is not quite as large a mountain, but it's a very picturesque mountain. It's, it's like when you're a little kid and you learn how to draw a mountain for the very first time and before you know how to do all the jagged peaks and you just make like kind of a, uh, an upside-down happy face, and that becomes your mountain. I mean, it looks like that. It looks like, like a half of a tennis ball in the, in the ground in the middle of this battlefield. And that's Mount Tabor. It could be that mountain as well. Either one, it's it's pretty astounding place because they have so much uh, kind of deeper impact of whatever mountain it is if it's, if it's one of those two mountains. Uh, anyway, that's just a little bit of background of the mountain itself. But even the idea that you climb such a mountain as one of those two mountains just to have a really great quiet time, there is a deep intentionality about you wanting to have great time with God, as was the case for Jesus and his disciples. So as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, transfigured, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Take that in. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which was about to bring, which, was, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time, what they had seen. We do know later, they tell everyone what they had seen, by the way. But because Jesus has said to them at that time. Now, to round out the story, it's always helpful to think through in our, our gospel accounts, what is given in the other gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark when we're looking at Luke? Because all three tend to round out great details. And one other detail that is available to us in both Matthew and Mark is that as they were coming down from the mountain, the disciples have a bit of a conversation with Jesus. And on this long march down the mountain, they say to him, why do they say that the Elijah must come first before the fulfillment of all of this and before the great Christ arrives? Why is it that the teachers say this? And Jesus says to them, you know what? Elijah has come, but they didn't recognize him. And, it, and, and then it says, as an aside in the biblical text, 
by this, the disciples knew that he was talking about John the Baptist. So in a sense, John the Baptist comes in the same spirit of, of Elijah, with the same message, with the same attitude, with the same fervor, with the same holiness as Elijah. But then he says, they didn't recognize him, and they did with Elijah, or speaking of John the Baptist, everything they wanted to do to him. And by the way, they're going to do the same thing to the Christ as well. And But then, after I die and be risen, then I will show you the full extent of my glory. So this is the kind of the rest of the conversation as, as they head down the mountain, which is a bit helpful as we look at this text. And as we look at this text, I have just two things that I want to really consider as we make our way through this. And it's an interesting text because it's not a, a lot of text with a lot of teaching of, a, hey, here's how you to live a moral life. I mean, it does say, listen to Jesus. And that's obviously a huge thing to be able to understand. But I think for us, if we can just marvel in this text at Jesus and allow that to wash over us of who it is that Jesus fully, truly is, we will have gained more than we begin to measure uh, from this text. So my first observation, my first point today is a sneak peek at glory. And in a sense, that is exactly what Jesus is doing here for James, John, and Peter. Peter never forgets this. Peter writes about it again when he writes his letters to the churches. This is an important part of, 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 what, Jesus, of what Peter experiences. Peter doesn't quote much from the events of the Gospels in his later letters, but he definitely does so here. We'll look at that in just a moment. But this idea of glory is an interesting word. Doxa is the Greek uh, idea of glory, but glory in the Old Testament or the New often is associated with the weight, the might, the holiness of God. But then there's another phenomenon often associated with glory of God. And it is brilliant splendor of light. And whatever the depth of this brilliant splendor of light is, it's off the charts for us. Because here it describes Jesus' clothes becoming like lightning. And that all of his entire form before the eyes of the disciples has been completely brought into metamorphosis for them. But what would that even look like to, to, to see someone whose appearance would be like lightning? I mean, have you ever even had lightning land anywhere near you? I mean, even, even within a mile of you and you were outside for such an event? If, if you did, you've never forgotten it. That shaking of your core of your being I'm sure it will remain with you all your days. As a matter of fact, one of the great stories of the conversion of Martin Luther from being a secular lawyer wanting to just pursue his own life to one who says, all right, God, I'm ready to give it all to you. The turning point of his life is when he was walking home from university and on his way home from university, he got stuck in a lightning storm. And in the midst of that lightning storm, he was kind of trying to huddle under a tree and there right before him, a lightning bolt struck not too far from him. That forever changed his life. And he made a little deal with God pretty quick there, as all of us do in those kind of foxhole moments. Like, please, God, if you can let me kind of like run home and avoid every lightning bolt from here to there, I will dedicate my life to you. Now, he actually did. A lot of us made those deals, you know, growing up and like, ah, yeah, I... I I guess I did make a deal back then, but ah, who knows? It might have been the emotion of the moment. But, but just 
the, the small taste of the physical manifestation of glory in something like a lightning bolt is so astounding that it, that it you know, brings, brings men to their knees in, in a case like this. Now, this, this idea of the glory of, of Jesus and the glory of God, all in the same, would have been experienced by both of these guys, Moses and Elijah, on a couple different occasions. And with Moses, it was most prominently displayed when he was on a mountain with God. Keep your finger here and jump back to Exodus 24. It's probably the most famous mountain scene of the Old Testament and the most famous scene of the glory of God being manifested to a man. Verse 15, when Moses went up on the mountainside, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. The cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. What does that look I mean, Mount Sinai is an impressive mountain in the middle of a desert, very pronounced, stark in contrast to the rest of the landscape around it, very visible. It was such a frightening sight that the Israelites put up barriers so they wouldn't even get near the base of the mountain. And Moses, as he's heading up the mountain, suddenly the glory of the Lord comes like a cloud. But what is this cloud described as? It looks like a ball of fire that has settled on the top of the mountain and as though the mountain is being consumed by this fire. And, and then after it's described that way, it then says, and then Moses went up into it. Like, what? Really? I, and, and he does, and he enters into it, and he spends 40 days, 40 nights in that. And, and we know from Exodus 34, when he comes down, the Bible says that his face shone with the glory of God. And, and, and there he was with whatever these beams were, you know, kind of coming from him at that, at that moment. But his glory was a reflective glory. Of God, And uh, amazing as that was, James, Peter, and John are not seeing a reflection of the glory of God right before them in this monstrous sneak peek of the kingdom of God. They're seeing the generated glory of God from Jesus himself. Nothing reflected, everything from within his own being finally letting himself be completely seen for who he is. And it's not that this is such a cool scene that he in sense, you know, kind of peels off his earth suit and, and is like, ah, here I am. I mean, that's an amazing metamorphosis. But you know what I think is even more of an amazing metamorphosis? That that is who he is in his being. That is his state. That is his refulgent glory of who he is. And that he becomes man 
a servant, a humiliated servant. He becomes even a baby to, to have to grow up through all of his I, I mean, all of that glory, that's a transfiguration. That's a metamorphosis. That's rather astounding as well. And humiliating, humbling, as Philippians 2 tells us. But why? So that we could all sit here. That's why. And this great glory that Jesus will ultimately make known, he says will be made known and brought to fulfillment, not on this mountain, not on Mount Hermon, not on Mount Tabor, whichever mountain it may be. But as the text tells us, you can jump back, by the way, to... I'm sorry, but before you jump back, let's just indulge ourselves with this idea of the glory of God one more time. And look in Psalm 97. Let's make a little stop along the way. Psalm 97, I'll read the first few verses. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. That's the small little peak that the disciples got as they looked into the face of Jesus at that very moment. It also says in Matthew and Mark as Jesus uh, touches them from, from their stupor, don't be afraid. I would imagine that there was a good bit of fear coursing through their veins as they were trying to take in all of this mountain of fire and lightning and glory and power all now suddenly being somewhat displayed through their Jesus, their buddy that has taught them and led them these years. And now as he turns and makes his way to Jerusalem, this is what is happening in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is all about the pivot of the gospel, of the teaching, the, the tension, all rising, being resolved that I am the Messiah. And now you're going to see what the Messiah is really going to do at the moment of this pivot to ensure that they are with him. He allows them this appetizer, so to speak, of the full banquet of the kingdom of God. And not just to him, but to us as well. And not just to James, John, and Peter, but to somebody else, Moses and Elijah. And now, why Moses and Elijah, by the way, in this scene? It's, it's pretty interesting that you have these two guys. I think the obvious answer is that the story ends with God saying to the disciples, here is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He is the greater fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. I mean, they represent the law and the prophets. And now Jesus is the one that really does make sense of the law and the prophets. But also, I think there's something rather interesting, too, in that Elijah is one of the three characters of the Old Testament that has an odd death, let's say. Because Elijah never dies. He's just, as uh, some say, translated into heaven. 
kind of subsumed up into heaven by the chariots of fire. The other person who has that type of experience is Enoch back in, in uh, Genesis. But the other person who has a bit of a, let, let's call it a vague death, is Moses. Because Moses is brought up to the top of Mount Nebo at the end of his life. And, and there he's allowed to look over and see the promised land. And how he must have longed to be able to set foot in that promised land. But God says to him, no, you will not set foot in it. But you will die here. And what's interesting is that no one ever knows where Moses is buried. Perhaps God set it up that way so that there would not be the worship of a man. Because Moses was such a monumental figure, of course, to the Israelites. But the, the scripture also says in Deuteronomy that it's God himself who, who buries Moses. And then Jude says something really interesting about Moses. And in Jude verse 9, it says, There is a dispute among the archangel Michael and Satan over the body of Moses. Who knows what that's about? It, it probably is a reference to a, a, a piece of literature that was written after the book of Malachi and before the New Testament. The, there are two books that were written during that time. One is the Assumption of Moses and the other is called the Testament of Moses. It, it follows some of the story of the Assumption of Moses that Jude may be alluding to here. And that somehow or another, Satan tried to make a claim on the body of Moses saying he's a murderer. He killed an Egyptian. He is mine. Whereas the, the archangel Michael said, Lord, rebuke you, Satan. And at that, Satan backs off. And, and Michael is able to, to keep Satan from, in a sense, having any sort of uh, ownership over, over a, a fallen Moses. Because, in fact, he's not fallen, but redeemed by God. Yeah. Side story. But here's the cool part about it is uh, God, who is so gracious, the one thing that Moses wanted more than anything else was to set foot in the promised land. Guess what he's doing right now in this story? He has his feet planted in the promised land. All that he ever wished for and, and greater than he could have ever imagined because now he's in the promised land on either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon in the promised land and the Messiah that he referenced in Genesis 18 the great fulfillment of all of the Old Testament and of the law all that he could only long to look at is now before his very eyes. And he has Jesus, the Son of God, the fulfillment of all things, right there before... I have goosebumps even thinking about this. Right there before Moses. And Moses is able to soak that all in and know that God is a God who fulfills all His promises. And Elijah is there as well to make it clear that the Elijah has come. For the Jews, it was always... Not until the Elijah has come will the Messiah come and then be brought into all things the kingdom of God. And, and so it, it is also fulfilled at this moment through, through this. Now, it is glorious to say the least, but there's something else that happens here. We miss it a little bit in the English. And the, the last thing that I want to look at, and I'm, I'm back in Luke 9, almost. Now I am. Is that as they are speaking to him, Moses and Elijah are. And by the way, as a side note of interest, Peter recognizes Moses and Elijah. That's why he says, hey, isn't it good for us to be here? Because we can build temporary shelters. Three of them. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He, he recognized Jesus even in his transfigured state. 
But he also is able to recognize Moses and Elijah. Now, Elijah is kind of radical looking, and maybe it's not too hard to notice him. Maybe it's the bizarre, you know, kind of skin that he was wearing, uh, that, that he's still wearing. But it also does speak to the fact that in the age to come, we will be recognizable somehow. And while we get new bodies and they will be imperishable and they'll be astounding, that some about us is, is still going to really be there. Or maybe a lot about us is really going to be there. Maybe everything about us will be there and we can fly. That's, that's my hope. <laughs> but these guys weren't flying, so a little bit disappointed about the story in that regard. Said, then Moses landed after his flight on the, on the mountain. But he's just standing, just standing. Okay, fair enough. Um, but, so in this age to come, what it is that Jesus is bringing us, there's, there's going to be something that we really love about this age, but a, but a greater fulfillment of it. And what are they talking to Jesus about? They're talking to Jesus about his departure. But Luke uses a very, uh, well, we'll call it pregnant word, pregnant with meaning. And what is the word that he uses here? He talks about his, and, and I'm, I'm looking right now in verse um, 31. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. The word that Luke uses here for departure is a Greek word, but as soon as I say it, you'll know the word. Exodus is the Greek word. So he speaks to Jesus about his exodus that is about to occur. What is the exodus to the Jews hearing this story? It is the deliverance, the ultimate fulfillment of God. We are no longer chained by this enslavement, but we have been unfettered, set free, and now off to the promised land. Now, they're already in the promised land, so it's not about the promised land as it physically exists now at this point where they are. And even for Moses, this is like a double fulfillment, which he's got to be so fired up about because he's having to have a deep conversation with Jesus about not just an old exodus, but yet another exodus that is about to occur. And what is that exodus? The ultimate exodus that's going to be brought about by the resurrection of Jesus that he will fulfill in Jerusalem. His death, burial, and resurrection is for the resurrection of all things. And as all of that is going to be brought about, this is what he's really preparing for glory for us. And it won't be accomplished on this mountain. It'll be accomplished in a much more glorious fashion. Not with Jesus shining brilliantly with light, but Jesus beaten and bloodied, tortured, ripped up for the sake of our transgressions. To be able to make right any and all that we have decided to indulge in our flesh. So that we can participate in the ultimate exodus. The new heaven, the new earth. To be able to be set free and brought into the greater glory that God is giving a sneak peek of right now. And whatever all of that is going to be, we don't really know. We can't even dare to imagine. Even our wildest imaginations will fall woefully short of what it will be. But it is coming nonetheless and it is made secure by the fulfillment that Jesus brings in Jerusalem by his death, burial, and resurrection. And by the way, if Jesus didn't die with our sins, endure all that he did on the cross, and if there is not an age to come, then all of that is one of the most wicked stunts 
by, by God that ever could be uh, perpetrated. And as Paul says, if we have hope only in this life, then we, more than all people, are to be pitied. Because it's not about the fact that, you know what, you've got a better family now, you've overcome your, your, uh, your addictions now, you are, are going to marry that girl that you have great uh, uh, counseling with Skype over now. You're, you know, <laughs> stuff that happened early in the service. It's not about any of those things. It is really about what is to come. And it's so easy in this age where everything seems to have so much ease for us to want to just make heaven here on earth. But because we've taken our sights off of what it really is meant to be, we're to be pitied more than all people. Because as good as it gets here is nothing versus what awaits us in the, in the exodus to come. And my, my last point, which I'm already in the midst of, is... The great exodus is coming. Yes, come on. It is coming. Second Peter, as, as uh, Peter discusses this, says, if you, if you look there in Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 16. Clearly a, a formative event in Peter's life. Even though he didn't know what he was saying then. As is too often the commentary on Peter throughout the Gospels. He knows what he is saying now. As he considers the same scene. And in verse 16, he says, we did not follow, uh, this is 2 Peter 1, 16. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when you told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter recognized that this is critical to hold on to because it points to something fabulous for every one of us. And as he talks about that, he says a little bit later on in, in Second Peter, for me it's on the same page here, in verse 8 of chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Because he's trying to answer an objection that everybody always has. Hey, where is this coming that's, that Jesus is supposed to be here? Why is he not here already? What's going on? What delays him? You know, is his car in the shop? What's going on? And, and, and he blows up all of those arguments earlier in, in, in the passage, but now says... In verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is the exodus that we await. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. 
As we anticipate this exodus that is to come, Jesus has already established all that He needed to do because He fulfilled it and He fulfilled it completely in Jerusalem with His resurrection. And with His resurrection, it's not just simply a, a resurrection for better lives. It is, as Romans 8 and many other passages, including 1 Corinthians 15, shares, it is a resurrection of all of creation. And, and as Peter even says here, as we go up and receive the Lord in the sky as He comes, as the great conquering Messiah, as we go up to receive Him, the whole earth is going to be, in a sense, recreated, laid bare, and brought back to the great original state that God meant it to be. A garden of Eden, paradise, where heaven will come down to earth, God will come down, the new Jerusalem will come down, and we enter into some sort of convulsions of heaven and earth together with brand new existence, brand new bodies. And for this, we're going to have eternal splendor. Scenes of bliss forever new rise in succession to our view. As we have fellowship with all the saints, with Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist, James, Peter and John, with Jesus, with God, with all with one another, and it will be a paradise, and it will be splendor, and it will be glorious, and it is the reason that Jesus died for us. It is the reason that He gives us this sneak peek, so that we can, can take strength and make sure that our lives are all being pointed into this glorious direction. God has something in store for us that is beautiful beyond compare. Here He gives us the encouragement to make sure that that is towards what we had. And for us... To make sure that it's so easy, so easy for the world to kind of beat us down and to take our mind off of things above and put them on things below. And so for one last practical before we head out today is, is simply this. Yes. Plan at least one special prayer date with God. As this section begins, as the previous section began in Luke, they both began with a special prayer. An intentional prayer. Not a, well, time to go to bed. Let me just kind of throw one on up to the good old Lord there. And uh, hope that he's, he's happy with that. It's not about doing it out of guilt. I'm saying have a prayer date with God where you really can simply indulge yourself in the glory of God. To indulge yourself in glorious communion with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Do so, and let the, that little foretaste of what it is that God wants to give you be yours to experience over and over. Any of us who, who does so, we never walk away from those prayer times saying, oh, what a waste. But it's like, oh, why don't I do this all the time? Well, that's fine. We'll have a little external prompt here for all of us to be able to enjoy this in God, to reflect on Jesus, to reflect on the glory of God, to reflect on where it is that he's, he, he is bringing us, and to all the more be excited to do what He says. Amen.